Our scripture reading for today is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Stewards of God's grace, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as for to live the rest of their life in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We dive into chapter 4 this morning of 1 Peter, and we've been looking over the last couple of weeks at suffering. And in the context of Peter's letter, the majority of the time when he talks about suffering, he is talking about persecution. And we know, as we've studied this letter all summer, that these are believers who are living in exile. They have been taken from their homeland to a place that they are not familiar with. And they've been experiencing local persecution. This is not something that came down from the Roman government, but instead was sporadic and was dealing with pockets of different areas where these believers, away from their homeland, are dealing with exile. As American Christians, our idea of suffering, our idea of persecution is often very, very different than our brothers and sisters around the world. We are fortunate to live in a nation where religious freedom is prized, but there are many places around the world where religious freedom is not only not possible, it's never going to happen. So we live in a very, very blessed location on this planet where anyone that chooses to worship, whatever it is they want to worship, is allowed to do so. But in the context of Peter's letter, religious freedom was not nearly what it is for you and me. And so Peter is writing to these believers, challenging them and encouraging them to endure their suffering and to endure their persecution. To bring it home to us, I want to give you an example of what happened. In 1948, Richard Wormbrand and his wife Sabina were arrested in Romania when the Communist Party came in and took over the churches and the country in Romania. And for 14 years, Richard was imprisoned and tortured. And the reason he was imprisoned is he was going around to the Romanian believers encouraging them and ministering to them during their oppression. He was also ministering and sharing the gospel with the Russian soldiers that were occupying the country. When he was released 14 years later, 
He testified before the United States Senate, and he had 18 torture scars all around his midsection as evidence that he suffered for being a follower of Jesus Christ. Odds are none of us in this room will ever experience the type of suffering that many of our brothers and sisters around the world deal with or that even Richard Wormbrand and his wife dealt with. He later founded an organization called The Voice of the Martyrs. It's a website, you can go to it. And what they do is they minister to imprisoned and persecuted Christians around the world. And they pray for them. And they send them scripture. And they encourage them. And so as we study today suffering in our context, I want us to be aware that our brothers and sisters around the world deal with actual persecution on a much larger scale than you and I will ever experience as believers in Christ. And this is how Peter starts off this passage this morning. He tells them to live for the will of God. Remember the context, local sporadic persecution, not imposed from the Roman government. But yet these believers for following after Jesus were dealing with persecution. And what Peter tells them is, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. That is the way of thinking that Jesus endured when he suffered on our behalf. Let's think about all the ways that Jesus suffered for us. Just the mere fact that he left his place at the right hand of the Father and came to earth was plenty enough suffering for Jesus. Being in the presence of God, seated at his right hand, coming to a broken, fallen world would have been enough suffering as it was. But yet Jesus didn't stop there. He went proclaiming the kingdom of God, and every step of the way there were people, the religious authorities, who questioned him, criticized him, threw insults at him. One of his closest disciples, Judas, handed him over to the authorities to be arrested. And then the man that he invested in, probably more than any other, Peter, denied knowing him three times after his arrest. Then he was asked to physically take his cross and walk up a hill to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And he was laid down on a cross, and the Roman soldiers took nails, and they nailed them through his hands and through his feet. And then they lifted him up, and they made fun of him, and they spit on him, and they put up a sign that said, this is the king of the Jews, as his friends and family members sat there crying as he eventually suffocated to death. This is the type of suffering that our Savior endured for us. But I want to caution you to not think that Peter is somehow belittling whatever it is you might be going through. He is not telling these believers, he's not telling you and me just to suck it up because Jesus endured far worse. He's actually being much more compassionate than that. But in light of whatever it is that we are dealing with, whatever that suffering might be, if we can arm ourselves mentally by thinking of all the ways that Jesus suffered on behalf of us, it can give us a better perspective. It's still difficult. It's still hard. But Jesus is with us. And he can identify with you and your suffering because of the suffering that he went through. And there's this interesting phrase that Peter uses. 
And he seems to be saying that if you suffer, you will cease to sin. And if you were to read that at face value, you might begin to really wonder what it is that Peter is trying to say. Is he really saying that if we endure suffering, then we no longer will sin? Well, we know that from cover to cover, Scripture is pretty clear that that sin nature that resides in us, even after becoming followers of Jesus, never leaves us. But because Jesus suffered all the way till the end on the cross, he dealt with sin once and for all. If you go back to the end of chapter 3, Peter is talking about these believers that are suffering for doing good. In other words, a lot of the cases that we see in this letter are not these believers suffering because they've been disobedient to God. It's not that they've been engaged in all sorts of sinful behavior. They're actually suffering for doing the right thing. And that's hard for us to grasp. When we are fully obedient to Jesus, when we are doing everything that his word tells us to do, and then we suffer, that is when we begin to question God. But for us, I want you to know that the way suffering is going to happen for us as American Christians is going to be this way. Suffering for doing what is good. Suffering for standing up for what the Word of God says. In a culture, in a social media culture, in a political culture where people are attacked and we are told that sometimes our beliefs are out of date with society, our friends and family members might make fun of us, they might not understand why it is we believe the teachings in this book, are we willing to stand up and suffer for doing what is good? Are we willing to suffer for doing the right thing, even if it means that the entire culture around us changes on what they believe about this issue or that issue. The type of suffering that you and I will experience as believers in Jesus Christ in America in many ways is the same type of suffering that these believers who were doing good were dealing with. Suffer for doing good, for doing the right thing, Peter tells these believers. And then he challenges them to spend the rest of their days living For the will of God. Not living for the desires and the passions of the flesh, but living for the will of God. That is my prayer for my own life, that I would live for the will of God. That is my prayer for every one of you in this room, that you would live for the will of God as a church collectively, that we would live for the will of God, that we would fight the temptation to serve the pleasures of our flesh and serve the pleasures of this world and pursue Christ wholeheartedly, living for the will of God. Peter challenges these believers to be ready to surprise people by the way that they live their life. He uses Gentile here as a description to describe all of those who are not in Christ. And he gives this list of pretty intense sinful behavior. And he says, these are the ways that those that are not in Christ, these are the ways that Gentiles believe. But those of you that are in Christ, you believe differently. You should behave another way. And when we look at this list of sins that Peter mentions here, it's pretty intense. But all of these behaviors can be summed up by living your life in a way that lacks moral restraint. And we know as believers in Christ, 
Paul tells us this in Galatians 5. The very last fruit of the Spirit that he mentions is self-control. Therefore, even though the temptations come, therefore, even the possibility to sin and engage in these types of behaviors mentioned here is possible, the Spirit of God resides in us, therefore giving us the power to show moral constraint. The self-control that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 is not the self-control that we often hear about in the world that I always received on my report card, Taylor needs to show more self-control. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about educational self-control or about just being better behaved. We're talking about the type of self-control that only the Spirit of God can put in your heart. These Gentiles were unable to avoid this moral type of corruption, mainly because the Spirit of God did not reside in them and they did not have the self-control to do anything differently. And this hasn't changed. Sometimes we expect way too much of our friends and neighbors and coworkers who are not believers in Christ. They do not have the Holy Spirit residing in them. Cut them some slack. Show them love. Show them grace. Show them mercy, but most importantly, show them the way to get the type of self-control that will help them live with moral restraint. Peter tells these believers that if you choose to live in a way that sets you apart from other people, there will be people that malign you. They will disagree with you. They will not like the way you live your life. I'm sure many of you in this room have been in a situation where everyone in a group was doing something and you knew that God was telling you to not participate, whether that be gossip, sexual immorality, underage drinking if you're a teenager, watching a movie or a television show that you know does not honor Christ. And I can remember as a teenager and as a college student even, sometimes feeling embarrassed that I was doing the right thing. Because we want so bad to fit in. We want to please people. We don't want people that are not believers thinking that we are arrogant or that we're somehow better than them because we know that we're not. And so sometimes we engage in behaviors knowing that it's wrong just so we can fit in. But what Peter is saying here is be prepared. Expect people to malign you. Expect for people to not understand. Maybe even to judge you. Ultimately, your worth, your identity, comes from Christ. And his is the only opinion that ultimately matters in this world. And so when they malign you, when they attack you, when they don't seem to understand why it is you choose not to participate in X behavior, remember the words of Peter here. Christ is with you. He suffered for you. And because of that, we want to live a life of holiness that is pleasing to God. Peter tells us that everyone who maligns you will be held accountable for their behavior. It's not just those that malign you, though, that will be held accountable for their behavior. Every one of us in this room will be held accountable for every word, every decision, every thought, every action that we took. 
But the difference between those that are in Christ and those that are not is we rest knowing that the sacrifice that Jesus made for us makes us right with God. Those that are not in Christ, not placing their faith in Jesus, do not understand that it is not about earning salvation. It is not about earning your way to God. It can only be through trusting in the payment that Jesus made on the cross for our sin. That's where our identity should be. Peter goes on to say that the gospel should change the way that we live. It's not just something that we believe intellectually, but it actually should transform the way that we live our life. And he says something here that many, many commentators and many, many interpreters have argued over for years. And what he seems to be saying is that the gospel was taken to those who are dead, somehow implying that those that are no longer here can hear the gospel once they have passed away. But here's the problem with interpreting that verse that way. From cover to cover in the New Testament, we don't see that type of message from Jesus. We don't see that type of message from Paul. We don't see that type of message from James and the other disciples. The urgency of the gospel from Jesus himself shows us that we must proclaim the gospel to those who are currently living. There is no way to say, well, I'm going to share the gospel with my neighbor, my coworker, my family member after they die because then they'll really understand how important it is that they need Jesus. Jesus does not communicate that way. Everywhere he went, he had in front of him the urgency of sharing the gospel everywhere he went. When Paul went all over the Roman Empire, he was never waiting until people died and then going to share the gospel with him. He had this sense of urgency that the gospel needed to be taken to them immediately and now because none of us is guaranteed the next moment. Rather, what Peter is actually saying here is that the gospel was proclaimed to these people who were once alive but are now dead. When we die as followers of Jesus, no matter what we endure in this life, no matter how intense the suffering is, no matter how frequent it is, we will be united with Jesus forever. And so we cling to the hope that we find in Jesus in the midst of our suffering because we know that one day we will be united with our Savior who loved us and died for us. Jesus knows that you will suffer. In fact, he tells us that it's inevitable. It's not if it happens, it's when it happens. Now again, we can't judge the intensity or the frequency of how it might happen, but it is coming. And there have been far too many people who followed after Jesus as long as everything was going well, and then as soon as suffering came, they ran away. And it's because they didn't understand what Jesus truly teaches about suffering. He tells us to take up our cross and follow after him. That's not hyperbole. He is telling those believers, he is telling you and me that there is a day coming when you will experience things that are not fun. That are not happy. That might not even be joyful. But yet he promises to never leave us or forsake us. 
And he tells these believers to be ready because the end is near. Now, if you've read the New Testament enough, you know that Paul thought Jesus was coming in his lifetime. Peter thought Jesus was coming in his lifetime. My grandparents thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. My parents think Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. Let's just be honest with one another and say that we have no clue when Jesus is coming back. We've all gotten it wrong. Many, many hundreds of years. Human beings are not those capable of having complete knowledge. Let me give you an example of this. I don't know if any of you heard on Wednesday, asteroid 2019 OK came within 45,000 miles of planet Earth. That is one-fifth of the distance to the moon. NASA only found out about it a few days before. It's already being labeled as a city killer. This asteroid, had it hit planet Earth, would have caused tremendous destruction and damage had it hit a major metropolitan area. And astronomers and professors all over the country are saying, we didn't know that it was coming. We didn't have enough time to do anything about it. One professor said, it was extremely uncomfortable when I read how close it actually was to planet Earth. Now, I think we're okay. It's already past us. No need to fret or worry. But if the strongest and most intellectually savvy scientists at NASA cannot predict if an asteroid is actually going to come 45,000 miles within planet Earth, how are you and I ever going to accurately predict when Jesus will return? The answer is you can't. And you won't. But what Peter is challenging these believers to do is when they pray, to be alert to be sober-minded, and to have self-control, to pray in a way as if at any moment Jesus might return. If I were to be honest with you this morning, oftentimes when I pray, I don't always pray in light of the return of Jesus. There's so many pressing needs of the day, so many people that need prayer and need my attention, that I often don't think about the return of Christ when I go to God in prayer. But Peter challenges these believers as they're experiencing suffering to think about what it's like when Jesus will return and to pray with that mentality in mind. The gospel changes how we live. And Peter tells these believers that are living in exile that they should love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter's talking now to a group of believers in a church context, just like you and me here today. So his words to this church are his words to this church. So let's ask ourselves the question, are we loving people in our midst the way that we should love people? Are we showing hospitality without grumbling? without complaining. We've all been hospitable or sometime or another, but I would venture to guess that oftentimes when we show hospitality, we do complain and we do grumble. And here's why. Because hospitality is costly, it's burdensome, it's inconvenient, 
It requires you oftentimes preparing a meal that you don't want to cook, cleaning up your house that you don't want to clean, giving up of your time in order to help somebody else. But yet Peter knows in the first century AD what you and I still know today, that when we are hospitable towards others, it's hard work. Do we do so in a way without complaining? If you'll remember the very first Sunday in June, I challenged all of us to think of one person in our four, our networks of coworkers, family members, and I'm forgetting the other two, but those four networks, okay, and I challenged you to invest in those people specifically, invite them into your home for a meal, take them out to lunch. Share the gospel with them. And what that exercise and discipline was, was an effort to get us to be hospitable. It was an opportunity for us to show genuine care and compassion for those outside the church. But what Peter is talking about here is being hospitable and loving those inside the congregation. So let me ask you another question. When is the last time you have been hospitable to somebody in this room? Not somebody that you know well and that you regularly go to dinner with or lunch with, but somebody who you just sort of know. Somebody who maybe you say hello to every Sunday morning and that's as far as it goes. Have you pushed yourself to be hospitable with somebody like that? Be hospitable without complaining, Peter tells us. Love one another and be hospitable to one another and serve one another. That is what it means to be the body of Christ. And Peter concludes this passage by talking about using your gift. Now whether you know it or not, everyone in this room who is a believer of Jesus Christ does have a gift that has been given to them by God to serve the church and to serve the kingdom of God. It is not a gift that we keep to ourselves because if we do that, we do the exact opposite of what Peter tells us here. He says that when we use our gifts in the way that God designed them to be used, we are good stewards of God's grace. But when we have gifts and we don't use them, then we are bad stewards of God's grace. The majority of people in church today are real quick to receive the gifts and take the gifts of other people. But there's not a lot of us who are willing to take the giftedness that God has equipped us with and use it in the body, and use it to impact the kingdom of God. If Peter can tell these believers that are living in exile, that are experiencing persecution like you and I will never experience, if he can tell them that they need to be using their gifts, don't you think it's even more true for you and me who will never experience, most likely, the type of persecution that these believers were dealing with. Last week, I was on vacation with my family. We went to see the new Lion King. And for the most part, it stayed very, very close to the old Lion King. But there's this one scene where a line was added, and it stood out to me. It's shortly after Zimba goes to the elephant graveyard, which is the place that his father tells him not to go, And his father comes and he saves them. And they're sitting there talking about what just happened. Mufasa is teaching Simba a lesson. And here's what he tells them. He says, 
while others look for what he can take, a true king gives back. Mufasa knew that a true king is one who serves and cares for and loves others. Isn't that exactly the picture that Jesus gives us throughout the New Testament? The king of the universe came to serve, not to be served. Jesus could have come and asked everyone to bow down to him and to wait on him and to take care of him, but instead he does the exact opposite. He goes out and he serves other people because he knew Like Mufasa teaches us in this new Lion King, a true king always gives back. So let me ask you this morning, are you using your gift in this body to serve other people and to impact the kingdom of God? Do you even know what your gift is? We offer a class here that we teach regularly where you can come and explore all of the different spiritual gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. We will actually let you take an assessment and show you all of the different ways that God has clearly designed you to use your gifts in this body. If you want to know more about that class, on that tab in your worship guide, in the comments section, why don't you just write down, tell me more about how I can find out how to use my spiritual gifts in this body. And we will contact you This week, a church at full strength is a church that both receives the gifts of others and uses the gifts that God has given to them. A healthy church is one that receives the gifts of others and every member of the body is using their gifts to serve the body and to serve the kingdom of God and to serve the city in which they live. That's what it means to be a New Testament church. That's what we find this church that Peter is writing to. He wants them to understand. You have been given a gift. Do not hoard it. Do not keep it for yourself. Use it to proclaim the gospel. Use it to serve the body of Christ. And by doing so, you will be, as Jesus tells us, a city on a hill, set apart and standing out from the culture around us. Let's pray together this morning. God, I know that there are people in this room that are experiencing suffering. Some are dealing with sickness Some are dealing with depression and anxiety. Others are dealing with the loss of a job, loss of a family member. God, we need your spirit to minister to us and to comfort us and to care for us as we experience this suffering. But God, we also want to keep the right frame of mind. We want to think about all of the ways that you suffered on our behalf. And for that, we are grateful. You loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And for that, we are grateful. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering in ways that we will most likely never 
experience, and possibly even never understand. We stand with them this morning. We pray for them. We pray that your spirit would minister to them, that you would be an encouragement to them, that they would know that their brothers and sisters in America are praying for them this morning. Millions and millions of people around the world who still don't even know your name. God, it's our job to make your name known around the world. So put it on our hearts for certain people groups that we can pray for, that we can reach out to, that we can make the gospel known. God, this vision is never anything that we could come up with or anything that we could accomplish. It has to be from you. So I pray that you would speak to us now as we reflect and as we meditate on what this passage means to us personally. Show us how to love you more. Show us how to love one another more. Show us how to serve one another more. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.